Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Begin today in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Luke places this story at about the same time that the church in Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul to the region of Judea with a relief fund for those who are suffering under the famine. Which means that Barnabas and Saul might be in and around Jerusalem when these things take place. At the end of this account, in verse 25, Luke notes that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, that is, delivering these funds from the believers in Antioch. So there's kind of these bookends about Saul and Barnabas traveling to Judea, and then traveling back to Antioch. The King Herod of verse 1 is Herod Agrippa I. And Herod Agrippa I was the, great, uh, the, the uh, grandson of Herod the Great. You may remember Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the local king when Jesus was born. And Herod the Great was the one who attempted to murder the king of the Jews, once the wise men from the east had come and said, we're looking for the king of the Jews, and we've seen his star in the east, and Herod tried to find out where this king of the Jews was and how old he would be, and he had all of the male infants in and around Bethlehem slaughtered. This was Herod Agrippa I's grandfather, Herod the Great. Now, Agrippa was a little less bloodthirsty, but he was a crafty politician. He ruled in Judea from 37 AD until 44 AD and was particularly popular among the Jews, especially the Pharisees. And this was because part of his political acumen was to keep the local customs. In this case, it was keeping the law and the ceremonies and the uh, rituals, the purification these kinds of things. And so he won over the Jews. His political acumen enabled him to appease them. So far in Acts, the persecution of the church has come from the religious sector. It has come from the Jewish leadership. The government, the political powers that be, have stayed out of it until now. Because with Herod Agrippa, we see the source of persecution spread for the first time beyond religious rulers to political rulers. As Herod Agrippa laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. You see, there are some who dislike the church. There are some in power who simply dismiss the church. And then there are others who seem to go after the church. This was Agrippa. He went after the church. And his motives are political. It's not that he opposes the gospel, at least we're not told that, or the church for what they actually are, but because he sees a political advantage to be gained with the Jews by attacking the church. His primary targets seem to be leaders, in the church, among whom are first James, the brother of John. You remember James and John from the Gospels. They are the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Herod has James beheaded. That's what it means by the sword. James becomes the first apostle to die for the faith. It was James and John, these sons of Zebedee, who came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and requested to be seated. 
at Jesus' right hand and Jesus' left hand. And when they made this request, Jesus challenged them with a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, can you suffer like I'm going to have to suffer? To which they replied, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Though Jesus was very clear, I'm not promising you those seats in glory that you've asked for. James is faithful to the end. It's also noteworthy, I think, that James is never replaced. It says something about as the gospel has spread and is growing, what the role of the apostles will be. Remember the last time an apostle died, it was by suicide, and that was Judas Iscariot, the traitor, who killed himself in remorse and regret, having betrayed the Lord to the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And how did they respond? They replaced him with another apostle. James will not be replaced. So James has been martyred. Then there's Peter. Because Herod saw that killing James pleased the Jews. Here we go. Here's this political acumen. He arrests Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a part of the Passover celebration at the end of the Passover week. But he can't execute Peter immediately because there are certain traditions and expectations, restrictions during the Feast of Passover that he won't violate. He has to wait until it's over before he can execute someone. So he puts Peter in prison and he assigns a squad of 16 guards to watch Peter in rotating shifts of four just to kill time until the Passover is completed because Peter is the big one. He is the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. What can the church do? There's only one thing. Pray. Pray. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. Fervent prayer. This is the same word that is used to describe how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested and then crucified. He prayed earnestly, in agony. This is the desperate way that we pray when our world falls apart. This is the way we pray when something we hold dear is on the line or when someone that we love is in danger. They are praying in agony. The apostle James has just been killed and now they face the horror of losing Peter. And so they are praying these, these painful prayers. And it would appear from what happens that they are praying throughout the night. Maybe they are praying in shifts, but they are praying constantly. Sometimes the church finds itself in violent hands. And it would be wise for us to remember that we are at war. We are at war. God's enemies are bent on overthrowing the glory of God and thwarting his purposes. The war against God then trickles down to his people. It begins in the cosmos, begins in the angelic realm with those angels who have remained loyal to God and those angels who have forsaken him and joined Satan. There is a spiritual battle that is always and constantly being waged. But that trickles down to us as God's people. Why? Because God's glory and his purposes are being worked out in the church. It is the church that is the apple of God's eye. His delight is here among his people. You believe that? God's delight is here. Sometimes that attack comes through governments. Sometimes it comes through the rulers of this world because we are his presence in the world. One of my favorite themes in the book of Acts 
is seeing how the gospel mission engages the Roman Empire. It's rulers, everything from its, uh, from its soldiers to its governors. How does it engage them? Courts, citizenship. Acts tells us a lot, reveals a lot about how the gospel interacts with even sometimes hostile governments. How can we respond to such hostility? Prayer. Prayer. Why prayer? Why is that the first thing? Why is that highlighted as the way the entire church in Jerusalem responds to Peter's arrest? Because God never intended for us to be our own source of power or victory. In the end, this is his battle, his war. He intends for us to trust him and to depend on him. And because of that, we can have assurance. And I believe that's what this story is about. That's why Luke includes it here in the book of Acts. is to assure us we can be comforted, we can be encouraged... What assurance can we have during such times? Well, first, we can have assurance that Jesus rescues his servants as he wills. Jesus rescues his servants as he wills. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 6. Then when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Now, it's hard to know how Peter can be sleeping at a time like this. He's chained to two different guards with two more guarding the door, and he's being executed the next day. But, hey, here's Peter. He's sleeping. This is the peace, the peaceful sleep of someone who trusts in a sovereign Lord. And so Peter is sleeping. In fact, he's sleeping so deeply that the angel who has been sent to rescue him begins his rescue with having to strike Peter in the side to wake him up. And I don't know if Luke, me- I don't know if Luke means to be funny or not with these step-by-step instructions that the angel gives to Peter to get dressed, but they strike me as funny. Dress yourself, put on your sandals, Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. Because it makes me think of trying to get my kids out the door. No, you have to wear a shirt, son. You cannot go out without a shirt. What do you mean you can't find underwear? Your mom just spent 48 hours with no food or sleep washing your laundry and you can't find underwear? That's how our conversations go. I don't know what your home is like, but that's ours. Where are your shoes? We're in the van. Where are your shoes? I told you 10 minutes ago to get your shoes on. Peter's not a child. Peter is, I don't think, just groggy. Verse 9 explains what's going on. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision In other words, in a vision, Peter would see things happening that weren't really happening. Like the food or the animals in the sheet in chapter 10. 
That was a vision. It was something he saw, but there weren't actual real animals being lowered in a, in a giant sheet out of heaven. It was something he was seeing to teach him something. And Peter thinks that's what's happening again. So he's just waiting for blow-by-blow instructions. Dress yourself. Okay. Sandals. Check. Get your garment on. He doesn't realize he's being rescued even. And so they miraculously escape. They go past the guards who don't see them. I don't know if they're in a trance or they've been put to sleep by the angel or whatever it is, but they get past the guards who don't see them. They go out the gate, which opens by itself, and they go down a street where the angel leaves Peter. And it's only then that Peter realizes, standing in a street away from the prison, Peter came to himself. He became aware of just how concrete everything was. That is, he wasn't suddenly awakening, still in his prison cell, having had this vision. He is now coming out of this this, uh, surrealism to realize that he's actually out in the street. This wasn't a vision. This actually happened. And now I am sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. By rescuing Peter, Jesus thwarted Herod and all the plots of the Jews. And what's made clear here is that it is not Jesus and it is not his gospel and it is not his church that are undone. It is those who oppose them. And it will always be so. It will always be those who oppose the Lord who are undone. At a time when we can see our country's collective conscience decline so dramatically, when we can look and see our culture deceived into really moral absurdity, when loving Christ and following Jesus is openly ridiculed, even considered dangerous and by many arrogant, when the church faces the threat of persecution from those in power, even those in power in a free country, we can have the assurance that the Lord rescues his servants as he wills. Now, that last phrase is important, as he wills. Because if I just make the statement, the Lord rescues his servants, and that's what the book of Acts teaches us, that the Lord rescues his servants, that becomes a promise, a guarantee that the Lord will always rescue you out of harm's way. And there are some who sell Jesus that way. That if you become a Christian, if you do everything right, or if you have enough faith that no harm comes to you, you will only know success. You will only know prosperity. You will only know health. Is that what the Bible teaches? You see, even Acts 12 that we're looking at today shows the error of that thinking. Because if you're like me, then you're looking at Peter in this rescue, and, but you're asking the question, what about James? James wasn't rescued. James suffered execution. So what are we left to conclude? Jesus rescues his servants as he wills. We're left to conclude that the Lord wanted James home. He wanted James home. James' mission was done. And the Lord wanted Peter to stay. Peter's task was not yet finished. We're not told why in either case. We're not told by the text that, hey, this is why James was done and this is why I called James home. And we're not told why Peter is rescued as opposed to James. We don't usually get the whys. We want to know why. 
We want to know why in our own lives, but we don't always get the why. In fact, we rarely get the reason why. But Jesus wanted James home, and Jesus wanted Peter to stay. But what we are told, again, is that it isn't Jesus, his gospel, or his church that are thwarted. They're not thwarted. You might put it this way, that James's execution served the advance of the invincible gospel, and Peter's rescue served the same purpose, the advance of the invincible gospel. Now, I know you're thinking, okay, Sean, are you saying that the assurance we have is assurance that God is able to rescue us, but might not rescue us? Because if that's it, I'm not sure what kind of assurance that is. I would say that it is the kind of assurance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in Daniel chapter 3, when they refused to obey Nebuchadnezzar's law requiring them to bow to the golden image. Do you remember this story? Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, he's asking them because they have been framed, they have been accused by other officials in the government for not following through with this. And in fact, the whole suggestion to Nebuchadnezzar to build this golden image and have everybody bow and worship it is part of a setup to frame these men and have them executed because of jealousy. And so Nebuchadnezzar is challenging them. Is it true you won't do this? Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Is there any God who can deliver you out of my fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace because we will not worship and bow down, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It might do us well to commit this passage to memory. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He's able. There's an assurance there. There's a confidence there. He is able to deliver us. And there's some confidence on these men's part, isn't there? And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I don't know why they say that. Did they know that somehow? But if not, they seem to leave open the possibility that their God, whom they serve, who is able to deliver them out of the fiery furnace, might choose to not deliver them out of the fiery furnace. And if he does not deliver us, be it known to you, we will not serve your gods. That's the kind of assurance I'm talking. That's the kind of assurance that you can have that Jesus rescues his people, his servants, as he wills. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, were rescued. 
Nebuchadnezzar looked down into the fiery furnace where they were walking around with a fourth person, one who looked like a son of man. But what about Jesus? Was he rescued? Jesus even asked to be rescued in the garden when he was praying. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Was Jesus rescued? Jesus wasn't rescued. The Father's will was not to rescue Jesus or James. But it was Peter. It was his will to rescue Peter. Acts 12, listen, Acts 12 does not offer us assurance that we will not suffer for Jesus' name. Or even assurance that we won't die for Jesus' name. The assurance Acts 12 gives us is that if you are in prison for Jesus' sake, then it is because Jesus wills that you be in prison. If you lose tax exemption status for Jesus' name, then it is Jesus' will that you no longer have tax exemption status. And if he wills to set you free, then there is no power on earth that can stop him. None. That's the assurance that Acts chapter 12 gives us. Assurance that he sees you and that he sees me. That his eyes are upon us that he knows when we suffer and that it is part of his design. It is part of his will. It is assurance that we can know that he hears our cries as he heard the church praying earnestly for Peter. Acts chapter 12 only fails to provide assurance if you are first and foremost committed to ease and safety in this life as your highest priorities instead of Jesus' glory and instead of his gospel. And you want assurance that Jesus will preserve your ease. There's no assurance for that. Okay. Now let's finish the story. Because God rescues Peter and he reunites him with the church. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So in the morning, there's confusion, mayhem. Herod searches for Peter, but he cannot find him because, as the Bible tells us, Peter left the city. And the guards pay with their lives for losing Peter. And that was a a fairly standard punishment, especially for a prisoner who was slated for death. If you lost that prisoner, your life was forfeit in his place. So these guards lose their lives because of Peter. 
Once free, Peter goes to one of those homes in Jerusalem where the church gathers for teaching, for fellowship, for breaking bread, for worship, and for prayer. And here, even in the middle of the night, they are praying. And there are probably a few, maybe even several of these homes throughout the city of Jerusalem. I think Peter goes to this one because it's the closest one. It's the one closest to the prison where he had been uh, under guard. We're also introduced to John Mark, whose mother's home this is, his mother Mary. He will accompany Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary journey in the next chapter. And he will, some years after this, write a gospel of Jesus' life, what we know as the Gospel of Mark. So this reunion then in Mary's house, which was probably a pretty good-sized place that a large number of people of the church could meet, this reunion is ironic and humorous. The church has been praying earnestly, fervently for Peter, but now that Peter has actually been delivered, now that he has escaped prison and is even knocking at the door, they can't comprehend it. They don't seem to have a category for it. So what were they actually praying for? Were they praying for Peter to have strength? That would have been a good thing. Lord, help Peter to have the strength and the grace to endure while he's in prison, even if it means dying for you. Were they praying for acquittal? That the next day when he stood on trial, when he was brought out before the people, that he would be found innocent, acquitted, not executed, maybe? Were they praying for some sort of divine intervention? Whatever it was they were praying, they weren't expecting Peter to show up at the house in the middle of the night. And then there's Rhoda. Rhoda, her name means little Rose. She's a servant girl in John Mark's mom's house, and she happens to be the one who hears Peter knocking and probably speaking. It says he recogni uh, she recognizes his voice. So she goes to the gate and says, who is it? And he says, it's me, it's Peter. She becomes so excited with joy that she leaves Peter standing outside and runs back to tell everybody that Peter's at the gate. And it says that Peter continued to knock. So Peter's still outside going, hello, hello. Here, hey, let me in because, you know, <laughs> the guards, they could be coming. He's trying to get inside. She goes back, she, and no one takes her seriously. You're out of your mind. You've been up too late. You've been praying too many hours. But Rhoda keeps insisting, it's Peter, he's at the gate, and Peter keeps on knocking, and finally they open the door, only to have Peter shush them. You can imagine in the middle of the night, that large number of people beginning to speak and ask questions and, and shout, hallelujah, praise God, praise the Lord, it's Peter. And Peter's like, shh, last thing he wants is attention, especially in the middle of the night. Here's what happened, and now I'm on the run, and I've got to get out of here. That's basically what Peter said. Verse 17, tell these things to James and the brothers. Which means that James and the brothers, other leaders within the church, are not at this location. They are probably somewhere else doing the same thing, praying for Peter. And Peter says, I don't have time to go visit each of the houses where the church is gathered, you need to report to them. Tell them what's happened. I've got to go. Meaning, Peter flees Jerusalem and goes into hiding. We don't see Peter again until Acts chapter 15, once again back in Jerusalem. I think this also signifies a shift, a shift to James. Now, this is James, the brother of the Lord. Jesus' younger brother, really half-brother, James, who has, who's mentioned in the Gospels as not believing when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, but later 
comes to believe and even becomes, I believe here, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I think that's part of the reason Peter singles him out and names him here. He says, make sure you tell James, because part of this is now James is going to give the leadership that Peter had been giving to the church. This is something that becomes pretty clear later in the book. So, James the apostle has been martyred for the faith. Peter has been miraculously rescued, but has now fled Jerusalem. Jesus rescues his servants as he wills. And if Herod's fate tells us anything, it is that we can also have assurance that Jesus judges his enemies. Jesus judges his enemies in his own time, in his own time. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, glory, uh, give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This all takes place in the city of Caesarea, which happens to be the same city that Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and his household. It's a city up on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it is the seat, the local seat of government. That's why Herod is now gone back there from Jerusalem. And we're given a little insight into the geopolitics of the, of the day. Tyre and Sidon, two other cities further north on the coast, are dependent on Herod's region for food, especially corn, which was grown in Galilee. And there's some kind of strife between them. Herod is angry, or the word is furious. And so they have done something to offend Herod, and I think if you put the piece together, Herod has threatened to shut off the food supplies, to use different ports, to do different trade deals, embargoes, whatever he's doing. And the people of Tyre and Sidon actually have an in with his chamberlain, who is really a kind of personal chief of staff, Blastus. And they convince him to mediate the situation. It is successful. And so to commemorate this, this new deal, this new trade deal, Herod delivers a public speech. The detail's amazing, isn't it, by the way? It's amazing, isn't it? Herod is so eloquent that they worship him as a deity, and Herod accepts the praise. That's the problem. It's not what they do so much as how he reacts, how he responds. He accepts the praise. According to verse 23, it is, it is because he did not give God the glory that an angel of the Lord strikes him down. This is one of those events in the Bible that is confirmed by other historical resources outside of the Bible. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, records this event as an eyewitness in Caesarea. Josephus, this historian, was actually in Caesarea and heard Herod give this speech and saw Herod double over in pain and have to be carted out. He even describes Herod's robes on this occasion as silver and glistening in the sun. Josephus tells us something that the Bible actually doesn't record in detail, and that is that Herod spent five days in abdominal agony before he died. So the angel struck him immediately, and Herod spent five days in agony being eaten by worms from the inside out. Josephus also records that Herod acknowledged before he died that he understood that the reason was that he had accepted praise, that he had usurped praise that was meant only for God. 
The word strike, by the way, is the same word that's used to describe how the angel wakes Peter up in the prison. An angel strikes Peter, it's to wake him up and rescue him. An angel strikes Herod, and it is to kill him. Be assured that Jesus judges his enemies. Now listen, one day he will judge them completely. He will judge them finally. This is the day of judgment. Sometimes the Bible calls it the day of wrath, the day of the Lord. Paul warns us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So it is Jesus who will do the actual judging. John describes this great judgment in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and, beyond, uh, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is a frightening picture. It is the, it is the stuff of myth, and yet it is no myth. John has been transported in Revelation, not just sees, but transported to the event itself and witnesses the judgment of the Lord Jesus. You and I will never see him as a carpenter. You and I will only see him as the risen glorified Lord. And the whole world will only see him now as the risen, glorified Lord. There is a judgment coming. It's hard to, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Because it feels so far away from today. And especially when we see so many injustices that from our perspective we look and go, where is God in this? Where is God's justice? Where is his judgment on the wicked? We're not the first people to ask that. There are many places in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the prophets, where that question is asked. But sometimes... Sometimes, even before that day, the Lord gives a preview of that final judgment. Don't forget the flood. And Peter reminds us in his letters that even though at the time it seemed impossible to the people of Noah's day that judgment could come to the fact that they ridiculed him, Judgment did come, and it is likewise in our day. Where is Christ? Where is his return? Not realizing that it is only because he is patient. He is patient with us. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of Egypt, and Herod Agrippa. And even Herod... Think about it. Even Herod is not judged at the point of executing James. 
At the point that Herod has James killed, the church could have very well asked the question, where is God's judgment? What happened to the invincible gospel? Herod isn't judged at the point of arresting Peter. It's not until later. But Jesus judges his enemies in his own time. In his own time. Listen to how Paul connects our present afflictions of persecution with Jesus' coming judgment. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. And he's saying, we know that you are enduring affliction and persecution and we boast, we set you up as examples. That's what he means. We set you up as examples in all of the other churches and say, think about the Thessalonians. Think about what they're enduring. And they are remaining steadfast in faith. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's he talking about? The fact that you and I may withstand and endure, remain steadfast in the midst of persecution and affliction is evidence. It is on display that God will judge in righteousness. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed." Paul is saying that when we remain steadfast and when we continue to believe in the face of affliction and persecution that it is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you are worthy of the kingdom. And he connects that present affliction with the vengeance that Jesus unleashes when he returns. You see, vengeance is wrong for you and me because it is not ultimately against us that the crime is done. It is wrong for you and I to take vengeance because Jesus has taken the vengeance for himself. And when you and I take vengeance... It is because Jesus says it is wrong because Jesus is saying, that's saved for me. I will take vengeance. I will enact judgment and punishment. So the affliction, the persecution itself is guarantee of judgment. And though that final day is coming... Even now, sometimes we see its effects. At the same time, now is still the chance to believe. Today is still the chance and the time to believe the word of Jesus and the gospel. Now is that opportunity because the day is coming. And because it is still time, it is still time to believe, we can have assurance that Jesus' word prevails according to plan. Jesus' word prevails 
according to plan. One verse, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It's just a little tag. It's the same one that Luke continues to repeat over and over again in the book of Acts. And the word of God increased and it multiplied. There is no obstacle, whether it is a cultural barrier or an ethnic division, there is no obstacle that can stand in the way of the gospel. And there is no opponent who can thwart the progress of the gospel. Luke puts this verse with this word but, but the word of God increased and multiplied because despite all that the Jews were trying to do, despite all that Herod was doing, the word of God increased and multiplied. It just keeps increasing and keeps multiplying, keeps increasing, keeps multiplying. A young man rises through the ranks of the Pharisees with a zeal like no other to attack the church, to imprison and at times murder those who believe in this Jesus. His name is Saul. What does Jesus do? Jesus intervenes, breaks him, calls him to himself, commissions him, and turns him into an apostle. Herod not necessarily intending to attack the church because of what the church is or the gospel itself, but as a political motive for gaining advantage for himself, attempts to annihilate the church's leadership. And what does Jesus do? He kills Herod. Takes Herod's life. There is no opponent. There is no obstacle. And you know what? It, isn't have, it doesn't have anything to do with what we take for granted in our culture and day being Americans. I love our freedoms. You love our freedoms. We want to re keep religious freedom. And I think the Bible tells us if you can gain your freedom, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you can gain your freedom, do so. But if you can't and you remain a slave in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is explaining, then be happy, remain where you are because this world is passing. And whether you're a slave or free or in a democracy or in an authoritarian dictatorship or wherever you are, this world is passing. And be assured that Jesus' word prevails according to plan. That's assurance. That's good to know. And if you love the Lord Jesus and you love his gospel, then you can rejoice and knowing that no matter what circumstances you find yourself in or we find ourselves in as a church, Jesus' word continues. It will grow. It will multiply. It will increase.